My name is M. Jason Graham, and this is the M. Jason Graham Show. Registered Trademark Manifest Legacy When I think about the word legacy, I think about men like Walt Disney. He died in 1966, and yet the impact of his ideas are felt by hundreds of millions of people today. However, Black's Law Dictionary defines legacy as a bequest or gift of personal property by last will and testament. In other words, your legacy is your legal authorization to give something you own to someone upon confirmation of your death. I have to admit, I find this definition unsettling. Think of all of the ways people, and me, I'm people too, use the word legacy. They use it when talking about their children, or when musicians talk about their music. Members of a political cohort may talk about a politician's career as a legacy. But do those fit the criteria of ownership, gifting, or death? Joining me today is trademark and intellectual property specialist, Ms. Kelly Keller Esquire. She is the founder and managing attorney at the Keller Law Firm. As usual, I can be reached at the MJG Show at mjgstorycreation.com. And now, Ms. Kelly Keller Esquire. Ms. Kelly Keller, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jason, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? Absolutely. I am an intellectual property attorney, which means that I focus primarily on helping small business owners protect their brand names and their creative works, and also help them do business online. So it's basically all things on the internet, so to speak. So um, I am an intellectual property attorney. I am also a part-time law professor and a very, very passionate educator. I strongly believe in uh, the importance of legal literacy for small business owners. So I'm really passionate about creating content uh, that is helping or aimed to help creatives and brand owners to better understand how the law affects their business so that they can be better business owners. Okay. So with that, could you tell us the difference between a copyright and a trademark? Absolutely. Trademarks are brand names. They come in the forms of words or logos like the Nike swoosh or that Starbucks mermaid logo. Essentially, they are the symbol by which consumers recognize a product or service. We call them in the law source identifiers. That means that when you see the word Nike or Reebok or Starbucks or you see that Nike swoosh, um, or you see those Olympic rings, you automatically have an impression as to 
whether or not you trust that product or service. It essentially says, I trust the source of that product or service. I might not know exactly like where it comes from, but I know whoever is producing the products or services under that mark is something that I trust. It is literally the thing that you, you know, that it, it is literally the symbol by which people recognize any product or service. A copyright, on the other hand, is actually creating original works of what we call authorship. In the law, we use the word author to refer to any type of creator, whether that's a writer, a podcaster, a blogger, a painter, graphic designer. So any creative work, whether that's words like blog posts, we call those literary works, or for actual designs, uh, pictures, things like that, that's protected by copyright. So that's essentially your original creative works, whereas the trademark is the name of the product or service um, that you're offering, which may be part of, um, you know, copyrighted content may be part of your product or service, but the trademark is the name, the copyright is actually the content. When should an artist or a content creator consider trademarking? So it's a really interesting question, and you have to balance a couple of things. And as a matter of law, I'm going to tell you early and often, but there's also this thing called reality, which is, you know, balancing cost with return on investment. Let me tell you two important considerations. The first is that trademark rights in the United States actually arise from using a mark in commerce. So by you having your podcast, and the name of your podcast, and by promoting it to the public, you're starting to actually get trademark rights in your podcast name just by using it and putting it out there. Because the trademark technically is actually the consumer recognition or the consumer goodwill. So when people, and so I should say the name of your podcast is actually protecting consumer recognition of you, of your podcast, and saying, hey, listen, this is something I want to learn more about. So it's essentially that, like I said, that consumer goodwill. Just by using a product, or excuse me, by using a name or by offering any product or service in the marketplace under a particular name, you're creating trademark rights. Because that use is what creates the consumer recognition, and that consumer recognition is where the legal value is. So you are getting trademark rights whether you file anything or not. Now, here's the rub. Trademark rights that you acquire through use of a mark are protected under what we call common law as opposed to statutory law. What do I mean by that? Statutory law is stuff that's actually law on the books that's passed by a state or passed by Congress. Common law is what we call rights that accrue because it's, it's, it's almost like it's the right thing to do, but they're not pursuant to any particular law on the book. So think of it this way. 
you're getting these rights, you're accruing them, so you have something of value. But like in that common law right to a car, having the car in your driveway, having possession of it, having the keys, having control over it, and the ability to get in and drive it, you possess it, you own it, you have it. It's like the common law right as you're using your trademark, you're accruing rights, it's like you're possessing it. So it's just like having your car in your possession. But if you register the trademark with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, then all of a sudden you take those common law rights, which are actually limited to the areas where you're actually using the mark, so whatever geographic area where you're using it. So let's say that you're offering a podcast, but you have downloads in four different states, you have protectable rights in those four different states. But when you prepare and file an application with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, it's like getting the title to your car. It's like it's proof of ownership. So if you think about it, if you have your car, you have it in the driveway, you've got the keys, it's in your possession, but you get pulled over, what do they want? They want you to give them proof that it's actually registered in your name and that it's your car. Well, if you don't have a title to your car, well, you certainly can't get a registration with the DMV. So how are you going to prove that you own it? The only way you can prove you actually own that car is if you put all the evidence together and say, you know, to the officer, hey, listen, well, on this day, I responded to this ad in the newspaper. And then I went to the person who was selling the car and I wrote him a check. And then they sent, gave me a receipt that said that I bought the car from them. Like you could ultimately put enough evidence together to prove that you own it. But if you had the title, you'd already have proof of ownership. So think of it that way with like the trademark. You're using it so you have possession, but those rights are limited. When you get a registration with the trademark office, all of a sudden it's like securing legal title and proof of ownership to that trademark. The other thing that happens is that the trademark registration takes those common law rights that have a limited geographic scope and instantaneously it turns them into national rights. So even if you aren't using your mark throughout the entire United States, that registration alone gives you national rights, which means that other people can't come along and start using the same or a similar mark in a different geographic area. So to go back to your question of when should an artist or creative get a trademark, I think the question is when should they register the trademark? And knowing that the preparation of filing of the application and then ultimately securing the registration gives them national rights, we have to question and we have to weigh is the cost of getting the registration going to put us in a position where we're going to avoid spending money on trying to get other people to stop using a mark in another geographic area? Is it going to give us peace of mind? Is it going to give us the confidence to actually grow our businesses in a way that we wouldn't if we didn't have national protection for the trademark? So I always say, it's a three-step process. The first one is 
is this trademark part of your unique distinction in the marketplace? Is it something that makes you different from other people? So is it so unique that if somebody else were to use that mark and they were to offer a competitive service, would it actually hurt you? And so that's the first question is part of what makes you unique. The second question then, does it actually have commercial value? Meaning, is it something that actually helps you make money? So for example, as a lawyer, the name of my law firm is the Keller Law Firm. So that's my trademark. But I have a product that I will call trademark registration. Trademark registration is nothing that's unique to me. Other lawyers can use it. It's nothing that helps me make money. It simply describes to a customer what my service is. So there's nothing unique about those words. Whereas there is something unique about the Keller Law Firm, and I don't want other people to use the Keller Law Firm for intellectual property services. So I wouldn't care about protecting trademark registration because it's not part of how I make money. It's not anything distinctive to me, and it doesn't create any commercial value in and of itself. So the first question was, is it something that makes you unique? And second, is it part of your commercial value? And then the third piece is, are you willing to enforce it? So if you're not going to tell other people they can't use your trademark, and you're not willing to police your rights, then there's no point in getting the registration anyway. It's like going and getting the title to your car, registering it, and then somebody comes and steals it, and you're like, yeah, sorry, they can have it. I don't really care. Well, what's the whole point in going through the whole rigmarole? Let me say one other thing about the commercial value. One of the things that we see a lot with small businesses, especially small creative businesses, is we get really, really excited about things we want to do. We name our products and services in um, a way that means a lot to us personally, has a lot of sentimental value, but it's not necessarily something that will play well in the marketplace. So I always use this example. If you're somebody who's going to offer like um, a consignment store and you're going to sell it online, are going to sell like, you know, have clothes available for consignment online and you want to call it angels, fairies, and pixie dust consignments. So if you live in a geographic part of the country where angels, fairies, and pixie dust is something that would be really attractive to your target client, then that's probably something that helps you make money. It, it, gives, it has commercial value. But if you live in a part of the country or you're looking to offer something that's available nationwide, you have to say, is that something that's actually going to give you any commercial value or will people think that's weird? Because it's so, so specific and so focused possibly on a very particular market. So that's what I mean by commercial value. Is it something that you personally like? Or is it something that other people are actually going to uh, resonate with and actually want to pay you money for because they're so attracted to it? So to get back to the original question, when should you file? It's an analysis of can you, is the benefit that you get 
to registering and securing your rights more than the cost of the transaction to secure them. So are you saving money by not having to enforce your rights? So if you pay to get the trademark, are you saving more by having gotten the trademark because you're not busy and distracted trying to play a game of whack-a-mole is one piece of it. And then the other is, are you getting, are you essentially clearing the debt so you know that you can build your business nationwide without having to worry about whether or not there are going to be a bunch of people who will try to steal from you with impunity. So that's really the analysis. We have to look at the return on investment. Wow. Okay. Um, so what, what are the paths to trademarking? So two things. If you just start to use a trademark, then you want to put that little TM symbol in the upper right corner. All that means is you're saying to the public, I'm claiming proprietary rights in this name and don't steal it. It is not governed by law. It is simply something you can choose to use as a way of putting the public on notice. That is a way to let people know that you have common law rights. If you want to secure legal title to that trademark by registration, then you start the process by preparing and filing an application with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. It is a very long, complicated, tricky process, so it is something that I strongly, strongly recommend that people use an attorney to get the right support. So it's preparing and filing a trademark application if you want to go that route, or at least using that little TM symbol as a starting point. You can't use the circle R unless and until the trademarks are actually registered with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Okay, and what, what does it typically cost for a trademark? Or to get something trademarked? Yeah, 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 that's a great question. So it depends on the path you take. The trademark office uh, charges a filing fee for every application. And let me tell you how that's calculated. Every product or service known to man is categorized into what we call classes. So there's 45 classes of goods or services that you can include in a trademark application. So for example, if we want to file a trademark application for podcasting services, then that would be in one class. But let's say that you also wanted to offer business consulting services under that same name. That would be a different class. So the trademark office charges a filing fee of $275 per class included in an application. You have to include at least one class. So you always have to pay at least $275 to prepare and file a trademark application. If you do it on your own, obviously there's no cost. If you use a filing service like a LegalZoom, 
you will probably pay in the range of four to six hundred dollars to get it on file. But once it's filed, you're on your own for the rest of the process, which usually takes about seven to 12 months. If you use an attorney, you're going to range, depending on the complexity of the application, for the legal fees, usually around one to $2,000. So depending on whether you're doing it on your own, using a filing services, or you actually want legal services, it's going to arrange. But in order to get a, a trademark application for one class of products or services with proper legal help, including filing fees, usually between $1,700 and $1,800 will get you there. And that is an extremely comprehensive service. Wow. Did, did you say seven to 12 months? On a good day. It's a very, yeah, there's multiple sections and, so essentially, let me tell you kind of what happens when a trademark is filed and what it goes through. You prepare and file the application, and then it usually takes three to five months before a trademark examiner even reviews it. Once the trademark examiner reviews it, they're going to let you know whether or not it meets all the qualifications of getting a trademark. Then you go back and forth with the examiner, and once the application is, is in good order to move forward, then it goes into what's called publication. What that means is there's a time period when anybody who believes they'll be harmed by the trademark being registered. So let's say you're using it in four or five states and someone else is using it in a different four or five states and you go to get national rights. They're like, hey, 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 I already have rights out here. You can't get your rights where I am. They have a chance to oppose the mark. If you get through that opposition, that publication period, it's published for the public, in order to decide if they want to oppose it, then provided the mark is actually in use, then it will ultimately register. Seven to 12 months without any bits. It's a complicated process and it is, um, there's a lot of moving parts. So it's not as simple as just filing it and then automatically get it. You, there's a lot of legal, um, there's a lot of legal thresholds that you actually have to meet in order to get the federal registration. Wow. Um, whew, so many things to consider. Um, so could you give an example of a time when uh, there was a client that was relieved that he or she had gotten the trademark, had registered their trademark? Absolutely, because as soon as somebody else came along, and wanted to start using the same or similar name, guess what was really cool is that the trademark office, if somebody files an application for a trademark that's very close to another one that's already registered, the trademark office will reject it before you ever have to take any move yourself. Okay? Mm-hmm. So what happens is it's like its own policing mechanism. So by having a registration, if somebody tries to file and get an application, I'm sorry, if somebody files an application to get a registration for the same mark, the trademark office is automatically going to block it. So that's awesome. The other thing that's really nice is when you have a trademark registration, you can automatically go to somebody and say, hey, I have a registration nationwide 
do not even continue. You need to stop immediately. So by sending a cease and desist letter, they already have proof of ownership. My client already can say, hey, here's the title to my mark. I own it. You can't have it. So you just need to stop and rebrand immediately. No questions asked. Huge value, huge benefit, saves lots of time, energy, and money by having gotten that legal right to your trademark. Can you give an example of a time when someone regretted not trademarking? Um, how long you got? <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, anytime, what happens is somebody will come along. You know, you're going along, you're using your trademark, you're selling products or services, or you're offering information, even if it's for free, it can still be a trademarked product or service. But then somebody elsewhere in the United States comes and offers or starts a competitive product to you, and they have more money than you. So the next thing you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been at it, if they start somewhere else in the country with their own with with the same mark but they're not in the same geographic area as you and they have more money and they have a more market recognition faster they can put you out of business boom overnight wow so yes yes a lot of regrets you lose your whole business because you don't have the money to fight them and now they have rights in a geographic area that you didn't so it's like, you know, what can you do? You can't stop them. Had you had a trademark registration, they would have moved on and never gotten that mark in the first place. So then what would you advise people who see the cost of trademarking to expense? So what do you say I to think, them? Yeah, well, you have to you have to think of it this way. If you're approaching protecting your most valuable business asset which is your name as something that's too expensive then you need to reevaluate whether you have a hobby or a business and you need to consider whether or not you're interested in growing a business or you're interested in having a hobby that's really the question and then you also have to say well am i at least willing to know and get enough information that tells me I know I'm not infringing on someone else's mark, at least by using this mark. That's the first question is, so long as you're not infringing on anybody else's mark and you decide to go into, into business with that name and not register it, so long as you have a clear understanding that somebody else may come along and compete with you legally and you're willing to accept that risk, because that risk to you is lower than the financial risk of registering the trademark, then that's your business and that's no problem. Just make smart choices. It's smart risk, not stupid risk. But I also hear people who say, I'm not ready to register a trademark. That's okay, but you need to then realize what is your business model and are you actually trying to sell products or services, or are you just having something that's a side hustle you're playing around with that you're not interested in investing in enough? 
it really becomes that question. Because if you decide to create a bona fide business, if you don't set it up legally and you don't have proper protections, nobody's going to take you seriously. So at the end of the day, the question really isn't what's the cost of getting it. It's what's the cost, what's the cost of not getting it. Wow. So we, the, the, the question that we've been asking this season, uh, what are two or three books that you would recommend that people read? Okay, so I could give you 20, <laughs> but let me give you the top three. Um, I, I, I Actually, I'm going to sneak and give you four. Um, okay. There is a book called um, Blue Ocean Strategy. It's a little heavy, but it's a fabulous book because it talks about how you can compete in the marketplace on value instead of price. So even though you may be offering a product or service, but there's a bazillion other people who are offering something similar, how do you get people to want to buy from you, even though you might be more expensive? Because the value is unique to you and they can't get it anywhere else. Really, really amazing fundamental book. The next thing I would recommend is a book called The Ultimate Blueprint for an Insanely Successful Business. And this is an amazing book because it talks about money and accounting. At the end of the day, you have assets, things of value that are turned into products for revenue. And then the question is, are you actually making any money? So, you know, revenue is, you know, everything you bring in is called top line revenue, but your profit's the bottom line. Do you actually know how to create products that generate top line revenue, but are you sufficiently systematized so you actually can make a profit? Fantastic book, easy to understand. And then another book I recommend is called Creating Competitive Advantage. It's just a simple read, but it's so good about how do you actually how do you actually articulate what makes you different from everybody else? So sort of along the lines of blue ocean strategy, what makes you different, even though you might offer the same commodity, you know, you're selling the same widget or you're offering the same service, what makes you different? And it helps you understand what the various things are that you can include in creating competitive advantage. Those are my top three, but I cannot hang up or terminate this. Oh, until I say Michael Gerber's E-Myth is probably the most important book anybody starting a business should read. It's called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. It's an incredible read. It's almost like the Bible for entrepreneurs. It's really, really, it's, it's all about the difference of everybody who starts a business starts it because they're good at something. You know, they're a technician. They understand, like, I'm a lawyer. My technical work is, is doing legal services. But when you start a business that does the technical work, so when I started a law firm that offers legal services, I knew a lot about practicing law, but I didn't know anything about running a business that practices law. And that's the piece that's really important, which kind of takes us back to what do you say to people who say it's too expensive? It's a question of, well, are you building a business or do you have a hobby? And those are really the questions. So I think that I'm sneaking in a fourth one, if that's okay. Yes, yes, that's fine. Well, those books will definitely be on our 
in the show notes. If you would, go ahead and let the people know how they can get a hold of you if they have any extra questions or if they want to go ahead and uh, trademark their name. You know what? The best thing to do is just send me an email, kkeller at thekellerlawfirm.com, kkeller at thekellerlawfirm.com. Shoot me an email and just say that you listened to this interview and we'll make sure that we get a call on the books for you um, and have a quick chat to see if it's something that you're ready for, that we're a good fit to be able to provide a service to you. Um, or if we're you know, not, then maybe we can direct you to some resources that are um, available to you. I should also say stay tuned because my podcast, The Trademark Girl at thetrademarkgirl.com is coming soon. I would like to thank Ms. Keller Esquire for joining us today. Her experience and insight make a very clear path for those entrepreneurs that strive to be small business owners. Walt Disney believed in his value as an artist enough to codify that belief by investing in the protection of his IP. Most notably, characters like Mickey Mouse, a character that has been synonymous with his company, the Walt Disney Corporation, from its very beginnings. A character whose image serves as a corporate trademark. You know, Walt Disney's grandchildren own about 3% of the company, give or take, mostly take. 3% of a $130 billion empire. So what about your legacy? What's your last will and testament looking like? Next week, we close out the land and property art with Dr. Anissa Ramirez. She is a science educator, material scientist, and patent holder. Share this episode with a would-be entrepreneur or business owner. And don't forget to like, favorite, or subscribe. Until next time, take care of each other. The M. Jason Graham Show is written and produced by M. Jason Graham. The show theme was composed by Travis D. Artist. This has been the M. Jason Graham Show. I'm M. Jason Graham.